Okay, for the man who has everything. So this episode marks the first appearance of Wonder Woman's Invisible Jet. Now, when fans saw this episode, they didn't quite know what to make of the Invisible Jet, since it hadn't been given a proper introduction and explained within the context of the story. Some people thought it was simply a new type of javelin with a cloaking device a la Star Trek. Others thought it was just supposed to be, you know, a jet, not the invisible jet from Wonder Woman mythology, but it was in fact intended to be Wonder Woman's invisible jet, the invisible jet, and the reason why it isn't explained in the context of the story is that its origin is apparently detailed in the as-yet-unproduced Justice League direct-to-video movie, Worlds Collide. And it's been hinted at by the writers that the jet is, in fact, spoils of war. So whether Wonder Woman uh, took it from the crime syndicate's Earth, possibly from Superwoman, as a sort of trophy seems to be the, the logical conclusion to draw based on those comments. Now, in the comics, Batman was the one. It, 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 I should point out for people who might not necessarily be aware of this, I suppose, that this episode is based on a famous comic book story written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Dave Gibbons called, obviously, For the Man Who Has Everything. And I'll be noting throughout this episode where this where the animated version diverges from what was established in the comic, although it must be said that it sticks very close in all the most important ways. But what I was about to say is that in the comic version, Batman was the one that gave Superman the new breed of Rose called the Krypton, whereas Wonder Woman presents him with a scale model, an inanimate scale model, of the bottle city of Kandor. So they switched that around for this episode, and I suppose it's more in character for Batman not to think, be able to think of anything to get him. The idea of Batman giving Superman a flower is a little off-putting as well. That was the 80s. I guess it flew back then. So the, the genesis of this episode, the reason why they decided to adapt this story for the cartoon... Was it uh, Bruce Tim and Dwayne McDuffie and the other producers and writers were sitting around one day thinking that they had never really done a real Big Three episode. In other words, an episode that featured and only featured Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. The trinity, as it's called, of DC Comics superheroes. And Dwayne McDuffie piped up and said, Well, you know, guys, the best Big Three story ever told was Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons for The Man Who Has Everything. So they said, well, let's do that then. And uh, it occurred to them they should probably contact the original creators and see if it was all right with them if they did their story. Alan Moore was apparently uh, very pleasant about it and said, you know, go right ahead if that's if you want to do it. I'm, I'd be honored if you did that. And uh, he apparently requested a copy of the final version was the only stipulation he wanted to be able to see it, but they never heard back from him to hear whether he liked it or not, so... Maybe we'll never know. He's notoriously uh, critical of live-action adaptations of his work. Maybe he feels differently about animation. Who knows? So Brainiac here, to talk about a few of the uh, aspects of Clark's little Krypton fantasy here, Brainiac is obviously 
not the evil brainiac that exists in real life and is voiced here by Mike Farrell, uh, Pa Kent's voice actor, and not by Corey Burton. Whether they just wanted to double up to avoid the cost to bring Corey Burton in, it was probably the main reason, but you can justify it in, in terms of the story by saying that Superman hates Brainiac so much that he wouldn't want to hear his voice in his ideal fantasy world. He'd give it a different, more pleasant, more sycophantic voice. And uh, Clark's wife here, even though she's not referred to by name in the episode, is named in the credits as Loana, obviously a combination of Lois Lane and Lana Lang. Uh, an interesting mix, really. Uh, physically, she appears much like Lois. She has the same lavender eyes, the same facial features. Her hair is red, uh, like Lana's. And her she is a reporter, but her attitude seems a bit more laid back, a bit uh, not quite as cynical, uh, not quite as abrasive as Lois. A little sassier, maybe. So, uh, but still probably more more Lois than Lana. So one could probably infer from that that Lois is Superman's dream girl, but there's a few things about her that he'd make more like Lana if he could. He might, he apparently has a thing for red hair and wishes Lois could be a little easier on him, a little less rough around the edges sometimes, I suppose. And he lives on a farm in his dream world. Now, uh, in the comic version, that was not the case. He lived in the big city. Uh, obviously, uh, they decided to change that to be more in line with the, the post-crisis version of Superman, who's much, it can be said, is probably more human than Kryptonian, uh, biology notwithstanding. Uh, the modern version of Superman is treated as being primarily Clark Kent first and Superman second. He's he's human in everything but his biology. And so, in adapting the story, they decided to change it to be that Superman's dream world would be a lot closer to what he was brought up with on Earth than it would be rather than being fully integrated into Krypton's uh, technological society. So it's an interesting change, probably a positive one, given uh, that it, that going with what was in the comics would probably be quite out of line, given the, what they, the way they've established the animated Superman to act and to behave. Now, in the comic version, uh, there was no Loana. Clark was married to a Kryptonian actress named Lila, who had been previously established in the comic. She was a real person. He didn't invent her in his fantasy. She actually did exist on Krypton, and he met her once when he traveled back through time and visited Krypton before it exploded. So that was another change. One can question the... Uh, the logic in the animated universe of Mongol sending the Black Mercy to Superman under the auspices of it being a present from a grateful world. In the comics, the Fortress of Solitude uh, was really Superman's home uh, pre-crisis. He was Superman first and Clark Kent second. He was Kryptonian more than he was human, and as such, the Fortress of Solitude was really his true home. And he had a lot more space missions in the comics. He would always be helping out alien worlds and so on. And, and it makes more sense that they would send him presents to the Fortress of Solitude. In the animated version, it seems a little uh, little odd. Kind of takes you out of the show a little bit, but you can forgive it, given that they're just trying to be faithful to the comic version. So Van L, um, they took the name from the comic version, but his attitude is a little different. 
uh, originally in, when they first uh, when they took their first pass at the adaptation script, uh, Van L was a lot was sort of cheerier and bubblier and a lot you know generally happier and and more uh, outwardly uh, loving towards his parents. Whereas in the final version, he's more like a, a real kid and he obviously loves his parents and he's a good kid, but he, he talks back you know every now and then and he's a little annoyed with his father's. Uh, deciding to live on a farm instead of in the city and a few other things. Bruce Tim decided to make those changes at the last minute because he felt that uh, the original version didn't quite sell uh, Clark's fantasy as reality. Uh, they'd taken some criticism back in A Night of Shadows that Jean's fantasy family was way too happy and way too perfect to possibly be convincing as a reality. And so they decided to sort of dirty Clark's fantasy life up a bit in other words, introduce a few little elements that make it not quite perfect. Still a very happy, very very desirable life, but nothing's ever 100% perfect, and so it sort of sells it a bit more as reality. I love how... how out of... <laughs> how out of it Wonder Woman looks there. She's panting, but it's a great shot, too. She's animated very well there. And uh, just take a moment to single out Eric Roberts as Mongol. Eric Roberts is fantastic as Mongol. I remember back in War World, uh, nobody really paid too much attention to his performance, probably because the episode itself stunk to high heaven, and so you kind of want to block it out of your mind and not dwell on it, even even on the positive aspects. But uh, Eric Roberts' performance there was was equally good, but given that the material is stronger here, he comes across a lot better. What he does is very interesting. He he. In the comics, Mongol is sort of like a second-rate dark side. He's just an alien warlord who, you know, conquers and is aggressive and so on. But Eric Roberts here makes him just so arrogant. And he's sexist, and he's, you know, he thinks very, you know, he hates women, he hates humans. He's so completely full of himself and so smarmy and arrogant that you just you gotta love the performance, and I love in a in a, a few minutes here where Wonder Woman says you won't win, and you just of course I will. Like I don't know, it's just uh, he's just great. He doesn't get enough credit. I love Batman's little. Nothing's working. You don't get to see him uh, at a loss very often. I love how uh, Batman starts off by calling him Kent like he like he normally does and like he was more often than not at this stage in uh, in their relationship but then when he's really trying to get through him through to him he starts calling him Clark which he had not yet done to his face so far in the series and there's Jor-El and they gave old Jor-El uh, season one Superman's character design with the the cheekbones and the lines under his eyes. I wonder if that was a little in-joke. I mean, it was obviously intentional, but whether it was a little nod to the fans, like, yeah, we realized that made Superman look old back in season one. Now, I'm not sure if this completely works, given how given how wussy Mongo came off in War World. I mean, he, he seemed pretty strong back in War World, but then at the end, Superman and Drago just trashed him. Uh, the second they decided <laughs> they wanted to, like it, it wasn't really any problem. Yet here, uh, Mongo gives Superman a good run for his money later on and just completely takes Wonder Woman apart. 
whereas in Paradise Lost, Wonder Woman was shown as being almost as strong as Superman. Now, my theory behind that is that Wonder Woman could give Superman a run for his money, and, and Mongo could give Superman a run for his money on, you know, 99 times out of 100. But Superman has a whole other level that he can step up to that he doesn't step up to unless he's fighting, say, Darkseid. And when he steps it up to that level, no one, not even Wonder Woman, not even Mongo, could lay a hand on him. But he has so many checks and balances psychologically, he doesn't want to go there because he's afraid he might hurt someone. But when he does, and he, he does every now and then, then whoever he's fighting stands no chance, unless maybe they're dark side. Now here Jor-El says he made the prediction that Krypton was going to explode when Kal-El was only a few days old. Now we saw, if you remember back in Last Son of Krypton, the pilot of Superman the Animated Series, baby Kal-El was running around, uh, he wasn't speaking, he was just like goo-goo-gab, but he was, you know, he was walking, and he was playing, and he had a full head of hair and so on, and uh, yeah, I mean, sure, some newborns have hair, but certainly seemed like he was a few months old, if not maybe a year old back then. Maybe he doesn't remember how young he was. Maybe that's the, the reasoning behind it. He himself is not does not quite remember how young he was when he came to Earth. Now, I, I talked over it, but when... Uh, Clark and Van El and Jor-El are talking about going up to see the macroscope. Uh, Jor-El says, uh, go up with your father, and then his voice changes when he says, um, I'll be up in a few minutes. Now, that's actually Mike Farrell as Jonathan Kent, for that those brief few words when his voice changes mid-sentence. And they did that, obviously, to show that Clark's memories of the real world are breaking through, that he hears his, his human father and not his Kryptonian father for a second there, but I didn't catch it when I first saw it. And so when I saw Mike Farrell as Pa Kent in the closing credits, I thought, did Pa have a scene this episode that was cut or something and they just forgot to take his name out of the credits? But that was the explanation that I was clued into later. So if anyone out there is similarly mystified by that, that's the explanation. Now in the comics, uh, Clark just says, I was there when you were born, but I don't think you're real. And uh, Bruce Timm said that he added this long speech, very beautifully acted by George Newbern, about what it was like to be there when Van was born. Because the comic version didn't quite sell how much he loved his son and how, how horrible it was to say goodbye to him. It just sounded like he was making an offhanded comment. Whereas this version sells it a lot more. The music here is the same, it's the same music by Shirley Walker in both cases uh, as she used in Last Son of Krypton when Krypton exploded for the first time. It's the same music cue. That was a nice little touch, I thought. Now, apparently, when George Newbern recorded this episode, uh, he's probably used to being, you know, stoic Superman so much that it was hard for him to go to the real vulnerable emotional place. Uh, they had to do a few takes, and Bruce Tim just finally said, you know, George, I'm just not hearing the tears. And George said, all right, you want tears? And I did one more take, and jackpot. So he can do it when he when he wants to, that's for sure. He doesn't get enough credit either. And this is Kevin Conroy as Joe Chill. Uh, obviously, just in all likelihood, just done to avoid the cost of bringing another actor in. But psychologically, when you think about it, it's very interesting. 
if Batman, as would be in character form, feels responsible for his parents' death, feels that he should have done more, like he said to young Dick in, in Robin's Reckoning back in Batman the Animated Series, feels like there was more he could have done, if he could have said something, if he could have done something to save him, he feels responsible. He feels, perhaps, in a way that he killed them. It would be in Batman's nature to just completely pent that up inside and, and feel that way about it. And so he sort of maps his own voice onto Joe Chill for that reason. Again, it was probably just done for budgetary reasons, but that's the way I like to think about it. Wonder Woman comes off really well in this episode, which is strange, because she really just gets her butt handed to her. But she gets a little moment at the end where she ultimately defeats Mongo. But even outside of that, I just love how no matter how trashed she gets, she just will not quit. And I think that uh, that, that little bit of characterization does more for Wonder Woman than a lot of other episodes where they actually spent more time trying to develop her. This is a decent enough fight, but it's not up there with uh, the Joaquim Dos Santos VR movie episodes, it must be said. The little bit here in a second where uh, Mongol holds Superman up and says, Happy birthday, Kryptonian, I give you oblivion. And Superman says, Burn. I have to say, although I was really impressed with George Newbern in this episode, I didn't feel he sold that burn line. It is supposed to be very cold and dispassionate. He's not supposed to be screaming it out or anything, and so they got that right. But I just didn't feel the rage behind it. But what are you going to do? The interesting thing uh, from Superman's point of view about this episode is that it's very hard for him, obviously, to leave his fantasy life. But why is that? Well, he has, you know, Jor-El is there. Well... He has a father on Earth, and he's gotten to know Jor-El somewhat through the Kryptonian technology that he has at the Fortress. He's never been on Krypton, true, but again, he's gotten to know Krypton somewhat through the Fortress and through the, the recorded messages his father left for him, and, and so on and so forth. Sure, he'd like to have been able to live there if it were possible, but it's not like that's a, a huge loss right there. Loana, his wife, is just a composite of two women he already knows on Earth, either either of which would probably marry him in a heartbeat if he were to ask. And so you come down to the fact that the biggest loss, really the only true loss that Superman suffers, is the loss of his son. Because given that we don't even know if Kryptonians and humans would be able to produce children were they to mate, it might not be possible for Superman to have a biological son. This is the one thing that he has in the fantasy that, in all likelihood, he never would or never could have in the real world. And that's why it's so hard for him to leave. That's why Van L is the emotional center of the Krypton sequences. And that's why it's Clark saying goodbye to Van L that ends the fantasy. I'm not sure that moment with uh, Joe Chill finally pulling the trigger works if you're not seeing it in widescreen. Because I'm not sure you could see it off in the corner. It's a good thing the DVDs were released in... Beautiful anamorphic widescreen. Now, uh, just a final note about the Krypton fantasy sequences. Uh, in the comic version, they went a lot more into the politics of Krypton, and it really, it must be said, it was a lot of a, it was much more of a darker Krypton version of Krypton than it is in the animated version. Uh, Jor-El 
had become a sort of a, a right-wing crackpot uh, who was had basically been driven insane by the fact that he was wrong about Krypton exploding. And he, he found this cult that's dedicated to the idea that all criminals should be put in the phantom zone and no mercy and Clark is embarrassed by this and is is really distanced from his father and uh, the citizens of Krypton that are against the Phantom Zone uh, actually attack Kara, his cousin, putting her in the hospital in retaliation for Jor-El's uh, position. And uh, really, it's a it's it comes across as a, a very horrible place. The idea is that if Krypton had survived, it would probably be just as messed up as Earth is. There's no reason to believe it would be a perfect utopian society, which is an interesting way to go, but it makes it that much less emotionally resonant that it's hard for Superman to leave it if it's a crappy place to live. I mean, he did have a happy family there, so you can say that it's hard for him to leave that, but I feel it works much better in the animated version where his life seems to have encountered a lot fewer hardships and a lot less, you know, insanity within the family than it did in the in the comic version. So I feel that works best. So that's that episode. For people who haven't read the comic book version, Mongol is dreaming of himself on a throne with bloody corpses all around him. He's conquered Earth and killed everyone. And there's violence and destruction all around him, and that's his ultimate fantasy. But you can probably infer that. The censors wouldn't have let them get away with that. All right. Thanks for listening.